0: welcome to all of you on a beautiful morning we've come here to worship god together and before we do let me just mention some pieces of information that would be helpful for you to know we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago that there was an opportunity to help with lifts for those who uh, aren't able to get lifts or get to church under their own steam. Uh, if you think that you might be able to help with that or if you just like to know a bit more about what's involved, you could see Alan and Elsie Boynton. And if you don't know how to contact them, you could see uh, somebody who you do know and they'll be able to point you towards Alan and Elsie. And then also just to mention that we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m., where we will be finishing our series on the Psalms of Ascent. So, this evening we're looking at Psalms 132 to 134, and that will include time around the Lord's Supper. So, I hope you can join us this evening at 6. And then, just to let you know that after today, I will be gone for the next few weeks until the start of September but there will be plenty going on in my absence. Things will carry on uh, as normal and maybe a few extra things as well. Uh, This Tuesday, the Loss and Grief group is meeting at 10 a.m. here at the church. If you'd like to know more about that, you could just come or you could contact Twala Andrino. And then this next notice is very important for us all to digest. Next Sunday... In the morning, we're moving to one service, and it is at the new time of 10 a.m. The evenings will continue as normal, but please take note of that 10 a.m., and that will be the time from now on. And then, as of uh, next Sunday, there will be no uh, Sunday school. So, this morning is the last Sunday school before the summer break, and that will restart in September. And then, of course, you will all know that in addition to the move to just uh, one morning service, the national COVID regulations are going to be relaxed tomorrow. And that means that when you come to church next Sunday, you will no longer be required to wear a mask or to maintain social distancing. Of course, you're welcome to continue wearing a mask if you would prefer to do that. And we will make sure there's extra ventilation during the weeks ahead But As I mentioned in the email which I sent out on Friday, this is an opportunity for us all to be sensitive to one another, to the fact that there are going to be different views about what's going on and the changes that are happening tomorrow. So please, I would encourage you to approach this time ready to bear with one another and just having that awareness when you come next Sunday. As I said, we are here to worship God, and when we meet together for worship, we come not only to give our praise to God, but also to hear from Him as we pay attention to His Word together. And we're going to begin with a reading from the New Testament that speaks about the divine origin of the Scriptures and about their usefulness for us. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy, Chapter Three, and we're going to begin reading at Verse Ten.
1: You, however, know all about my teaching my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word.
0: Our first two songs remind us of the clear and simple truths taught in Scripture that our Saviour Jesus is strong and kind and that all our ways are known to him. Stand with me, please. try. This morning we finally get to do something that was planned for march a year ago as you know just before the first lockdown we voted to elect dave seward and steve couchman as elders and from that point they have been serving as elders but today we get to do what we would have done back in march which is to lay hands on them and pray for god's blessing on them as they serve the church fellowship as elders So uh, Dave and Steve are going to join me here at the front along with Morris and Steve Hope. And we'll pray for Steve and Dave. Lord God we thank you for the church it amazes us that you have chosen the church to display your manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms that amazes us but that is what your word tells us and we're glad to be part of this display of your wisdom and we thank you too for raising up elders to lead your church We believe you guided us as a fellowship to elect Dave and Steve as elders. And we ask you now to bless them as they serve. By your Holy Spirit, will you equip them with all they need for this task? Will you give them the right combination of humility and confidence? Humility about themselves and confidence in you. Give them the right combination of sensitivity and boldness so that they display true sympathy and love for us along with courage to stand on the timeless truth of your word for the honor of your name will you continue to give them an eagerness to serve keep them walking close to you will you prevent them from ever developing sinful unbelieving hearts that turn away from you you bless their families, especially Julia and Cheryl, as they support and encourage Dave and Steve. And as these two brothers follow the example of Christ, as they lead according to your word, will you give us confidence in them? Give us a willingness to submit to their authority so that their work among us will be a joy and not a burden. We ask all of this in Christ's name, and for the good of your church. Amen. Before we turn to God's word together, our next song is a prayer that he will speak to us through his word. So let's stand for Speak, O Lord. At this point, the Sunday school are going to be um, moving next door. We are in a section of Deuteronomy which is setting out a blueprint for life in God's promised land. Starting in chapter 12, we've heard how God will choose one place of worship for his people. We've heard how they are to center their worship in that one place instead of being indiscriminate in their worship like the Canaanites. We've heard how God's people are to be a generous people, canceling debts, and finding other ways to help their fellow Israelites who are in need. In chapter 16, we heard about an annual cycle of worship, three worship festivals that would keep the people focused on the Lord and His goodness. Then last week, we heard about judges and officials or overseers who would lead the people locally. And we heard about the king who would give overall leadership, So you can see how a blueprint is being revealed piece by piece. This is how daily life will work for God's people in the land. And this morning, another two pieces are added to the blueprint. We hear about the Levites and the prophet. And what this is really about is God communicating with his people. He's going to do that through the Levites and the prophet. And it's going to be clear and simple. And I hope we'll see that the principles set out in this passage still hold good for us today. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 18, and we'll read the whole chapter. The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no land allotted to them or any inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. This is the share due to the priests and the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. You are to give them the first fruits of your corn, new wine and olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. If a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he is living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, he may minister in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He is to share equally in their benefits even though he has received money from the sale of family possessions. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. So do not be alarmed. This is God's Word. And it divides into two sections. Verses 1 to 8 deal with the Levites. Then verses 9 to 22 deal with the prophet. So, first of all, let's look at the Levites, who are a living sermon teaching that the Lord is your inheritance. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. The descendants of those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites were one of those tribes. But they were unique among the 12 tribes. Because as verse 1 tells us, when the Israelites enter the promised land, the Levites are to have no land allotted to them. The other tribes would each receive territory in the land. It would all be divided up among them. But the Levites would get zilch. So where did they live? Well, what happened was when Israel conquered Canaan, 48 cities were given to the Levites. And those cities were scattered all throughout the land. So instead of being given land of their own, the Levites were dispersed throughout everybody else's land. The book of Numbers set out that plan in advance. And the book of Joshua records how the plan was carried out after the conquest of Canaan. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 21. So the Levites were scattered all over Israel. And it seems they would take turns presiding over the worship at the central sanctuary. But they weren't there all the time. A typical Levite might be away from the central sanctuary for most of his life, living in whatever city his family had been allocated to. What did they do when they weren't at the central sanctuary? They taught God's law, His instruction revealed in Scripture. They cared for people. And they carried out whatever ceremonies took place locally. In verse 8 here, that's all summed up in the statement that the Levites minister in the Lord's name. Commentators on this have suggested if you want to think of an equivalent to this today, you might think of church pastors scattered all over the country. So there was a very wise purpose behind God's plan for the Levites. By placing them all throughout the land, instead of in just one territory of their own, God was providing pastoral care and access to his instruction all throughout the land. But there was more to it than that. The Levites didn't just teach God's law. They themselves were a living sermon. You can see that in verse 2. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. The greatest thing for them was their relationship with the Lord himself. He was a greater treasure than acres of farmland and herds of cattle or sheep. But as we hear that, we might wonder, isn't that the case for all of God's people? Isn't their relationship with the Lord more important than anything for them as well? Yes. In fact, way back in the book of Exodus, as the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, having just left Egypt, the Lord said to the whole people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. It's not just the Levitical priests who have the Lord as their inheritance, it's all of his people. And whatever wealth or success his people achieve, the Lord will always be their greatest treasure. But here's the thing. In practical terms, it is not possible for every member of God's people to be landless and devoted to teaching and pastoring. Other things need to be done as well. So seed needs to be sown and harvested. New calves and lambs need to be delivered. Herds and flocks need to be grazed and shorn. Goods need to be traded. Society cannot thrive without all of that. And lots of other things as well. And so in Israel, the Levites were singled out. And the point of singling them out was not because they were a a one-of-a-kind, super-holy, super-religious group with a unique relationship to God. No, they were to be a living reminder to the rest of the people that nothing matters more than your relationship with God. That to have him is to be as rich as it's possible to be. So the Levites didn't have something that nobody else had. They were a clear and simple reminder of what all God's people have. The privilege of acceptance and intimacy with the Lord of heaven and earth. The landless Levites were a living sermon teaching that relationship with God matters more than land, more than wealth, more than any other measure of human success. Well then, how did the rest of the people show that they valued the living reminder provided by the Levites? How did the people show that they agreed with the message, that they recognized the Lord as more valuable than anything else they might have? They showed it by taking part of what they had and giving it to support the Levites. You can see that in verses 3 to 5. The people are to give from their meat, their corn, wine, olive oil, and wool to provide for the Levites. And as they do that, they're making sure the Levites are able to continue teaching and ministering. And they continue to be there as a living sermon. As the Israelites went about their daily work, carrying out their responsibilities, farming their land, as they enjoyed good harvests and prosperity, as they did all of that, the very existence of the landless Levites proclaimed to the people, the Lord is your true inheritance. Knowing him is true prosperity. Your land is a great blessing. Your crops and your herds are gifts to be enjoyed. But knowing the Lord is worth more than all those other blessings put together. And when we get to the New Testament, we find this principle, principle being applied to church pastors. They're not super holy, they're not a super religious group of people with a unique relationship to God but they are set aside from normal employment to devote themselves to teaching God's word. They don't give their time to building up a business or any of the other good and legitimate enterprises they might devote their time to. Instead, they devote themselves to minister in the Lord's name. And the rest of God's people show that they value that ministry by giving from what they have to support those who minister among them. That's the New Testament pattern. And it's important to see and to underline the churches don't support those ministers because they think the ministers themselves are anything special. The people give their support because what they value is the ministry itself. As God's people, they want to be constantly fed from God's word. They want to be reminded constantly that the Lord himself is the greatest treasure there is. They want to be brought back again and again to the clear and simple truth that whatever else they have in life, whatever career ladders they climb, whatever success they have in terms of finances or accolades, as lovely as those things are, To be received with thanks to God, it is the Lord himself who's their inheritance. So they need to keep their eyes on him and keep him as the center of their hearts and lives. So actually, you as a church fellowship support Steve and me financially so that we will tell you what you want to hear. What I mean is, you support us so well and so sacrificially because you place such value on hearing from God's word. You want those constant reminders that the Lord is your inheritance. You want to keep focused on that truth. And knowing that as pastors gives us great encouragement. And it also gives us a serious sense of responsibility to make sure we prepare well. To teach God's word faithfully and carefully, and to live faithfully ourselves with our own hearts focused on the truth that the Lord is our inheritance. So, if there's an application point here, maybe it's first of all to say how thankful Steve and I are to minister among a fellowship who are so wonderfully supportive. And the other side of it is for you to keep in mind what you're supporting us for. We are here to remind you again and again and again that there is nothing greater or higher or more wonderful than knowing the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That even if you were to gain the whole world It wouldn't come close to what you already have in Christ. The forgiveness and acceptance you have now and the eternal glory he has prepared for you. So far in Deuteronomy 18, we've heard how the presence of the Levites sent a clear and simple message to Israel. But when they arrived in Canaan, which is just across the river at this point, When they arrived in Canaan, the Israelites would be stepping into a confused swamp of spiritual ambiguity. Have a look at that in verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. No one could ever accuse the Canaanites of being uninterested in spiritual things. All of this is about their efforts to communicate with and receive communication from the supernatural realm. They were very interested in hearing from the gods or whatever spirits might be out there. We've heard before in Deuteronomy about the practice of sacrificing their sons and daughters in the fire. That was an attempt to manipulate the gods, especially the god Molech. Then divination, sorcery, and interpreting omens were ways of trying to get guidance from the gods or the spirits. One of the most famous techniques was hepatoscopy. That involved slaughtering a sacrificial animal and then examining its liver and other entrails to see what the gods might be saying. Then engaging in witchcraft and casting spells or by trying to impact the lives of others. Either trying to make a sick relative get better, or it seems it was equally, if not more popular, to try and make your enemy get sick by using a spell or an incantation. Archaeologists have come across thousands of written incantations from this time period. Then mediums and spiritists are involved in necromancy. Attempting to communicate with the dead, to get information or to predict the future. And as we read this, we might think, what a bunch of daft heads those ancient people were. Being interested in all that. But as with so much else in the ancient world, we shouldn't be too quick to think that our society is much better. In my first year at university, I shared a room with a guy who tried his hand at a little black magic. He had an old book of spells on his desk. And in a fairly recent survey, a quarter of British people say they have consulted a psychic. 38% believe they personally have psychic abilities. 60% claim to have seen a ghost. Almost 50% believe it is possible to communicate with the dead and they are interested in consulting with a medium. And many do. The clairvoyant industry is worth 40 million pounds a year. Probably most of us know someone who's into tarot cards or palm reading, horoscopes or Ouija boards. So maybe not too many people in the Midlands examine goat intestines trying to get supernatural guidance. They may not be into hepatoscopy, but there is a very significant hunger for supernatural guidance. And large numbers of people are seeking it in all sorts of different ways. I sat in Costa Coffee one day not too far from here and heard a teenager at another table describing a seance he had been to, trying to contact his granny. And maybe as we think about this, both the forms that it takes today and the forms it took in the ancient world, maybe we dismiss it all as complete nonsense. But actually, the Bible does not dismiss it all as nonsense. It doesn't say it's all reliable either, No doubt there was as much fakery with this stuff in the ancient world as there is today. But when the Bible condemns this, it does not say it's all fake. It allows that there can be some supernatural contact made through these channels. Even if 95% of it's fake, that doesn't mean it's all fake. The reason the Bible condemns divination, witchcraft, and necromancy is because they are all human attempts to break into the supernatural world and get results. They are a refusal to be satisfied with what God chooses to reveal. Instead, they're about seeking what He has chosen not to reveal. Like the specific details of your future or events from your past. That is why God condemns all this stuff. Not because there's no power in it, but because it is satanic. Remember what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. I know God said, don't eat from that particular tree. But if you do eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will have God-like insight and power. People who get involved in witchcraft and fortune-telling today are seeking that same kind of God-like insight and power. Last week in the evening, we looked at Psalm 131, where David says, I do not concern myself with great matters, Are things too wonderful for me? In the Bible, great matters and wonderful things are the stuff that's God's business and not ours. And his people are to trust him to manage those things. We don't try and get a sneak peek into those things. We don't try and manipulate supernatural power to make things happen. So if you are involved in any of it, stop it and get out of it. Here in our passage in verse 14, Israel is told, The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Literally, but not thus has the Lord your God given to you. In other words, those are not the ways the Lord your God has chosen to communicate with you. And that leads then to the way he has chosen to communicate. In verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The Israelites don't need to resort to all those magical practices Because the Lord Himself will speak to His people. He will reveal the truth and wisdom He wants them to know. And He will do it in His way. That way is by raising up a prophet like Moses. The key to this is the word like. How will the prophet be like Moses? He will be like Him in that God speaks through Him with a refreshing clarity. We know that's the case, because verses sixteen to eighteen explain what it is about Moses that will be true if the prophet like him. Verse 16 Moses says, For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. This incident has been referred to a couple of times previously in Deuteronomy. Forty years before this point in time when the law was given at Horeb, also known as Sinai, God spoke audibly from the mountain. And the people couldn't bear to hear God's audible voice. It was too terrifying. So the Lord gave his word to Moses, who then passed it on to the people. And that word from the Lord came with absolute clarity. It was given to Moses on two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. You can't get any more clear and unambiguous than that. And here God promises he will raise up a future prophet. And he will give that prophet equally clear and unambiguous words. The prophet will bring a refreshing clarity. The Lord says, I will put my words in his mouth. And it's important to see all of this is in stark contrast to the stuff we've heard about in verses 9 to 14 divination, sorcery, and necromancy. Even if we accept that there may occasionally be some accuracy in those things, it's also true that it is a confused swamp of spiritual ambiguity. Because who could really be sure what those animal guts were telling you? What if you held the liver the other way up? Would it be saying the opposite of what it's saying if you hold it this way? And who can really be sure if the voice claiming to be your granny really is your granny? Or if it's a demon trying to deceive you? Or if it's just the other person at the table talking in a funny voice? And who really knows what the crystal ball is showing you? Or what the palm reader sees on your palm. What in fact tends to happen is the reader or the channeler says things that are so vague they could mean a whole lot of different things. People in that industry do a good job of covering their own back so they don't have to give you refunds. And into that confusing mess comes this promise from God of a prophet like Moses. One who will have the very words of God placed in his mouth. So his instruction is as clear as the commands at Sinai chiseled in stone. Isn't that a refreshing alternative to the foggy uncertainty of interpreting omens and trying to contact your granny? But, of course, it also means there is absolutely no wiggle room with this clear word. You cannot pretend you don't understand. And so in verse 19, God says, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded... Or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. So when this word comes, there is no excuse for ignoring it. The person who does ignore it will have to answer to God himself one day. And at the other end of things, anyone who presumes to say, this is the word of the Lord, when it's not the word of the Lord, well, that person's in a whole lot of hot water too. You wouldn't want to be the person who makes a false claim to speak for God. How do you know when someone makes a false claim? Verse 21 says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. So do not be alarmed. This is what you call a necessary but not sufficient test of authenticity. What that means is this is a necessary test. Not all prophecy was about the future, but when a prophet did make a prediction about the future, if it didn't come true, they were certainly a false prophet. But we know too that sometimes false prophets made predictions that came true. We were told that back in chapter 13. And so that passage added another test. If that prophet tries to lead you away from what God has already said, then he or she is a false prophet. No matter if what they predicted comes true. So we need both tests Does the prophet's prediction come true? And are the prophet's words in line with what God has already said? If they fail either of those tests, they are not from God. How did this promise of a prophet like Moses play out? Well, just as the promise of a king for Israel led to a long line of kings, so this promise played out in a long line of prophets. Whenever the Lord chose to communicate with his people, he raised up a prophet like Moses, a spokesperson who brought a clear and unambiguous message, because the Lord put his own words in the prophet's mouth. So as we read on in the Old Testament, we hear about Samuel, that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. In other words, all he said proved to be true and accurate, because what he said was truly from God. Then, the books of Kings, we hear about Elijah and his successor Elisha. Then, later, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of the other prophets whose words from God are preserved for us in the Old Testament. Then, as the New Testament records the life of Jesus Christ, it tells us about an event in Jesus' life where he led three of his disciples up a mountain. And there, on the mountain, as the disciples watched, Jesus was joined by Moses and Elijah, two of God's foremost Old Testament prophets. And at that moment, God himself again spoke audibly, as he had back at Mount Sinai. And he designated Jesus as the one who would communicate his word. He said about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Just before that meeting on the mountain, Jesus had predicted his own death in the most specific terms. He said that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then after three days, he would rise again. And when Jesus did go through all that and did rise again, Peter, who'd been with Jesus on the mountain, finally put it all together. God had told the disciples to listen to Jesus. What Jesus had said about himself had come true. And so as Peter preached to the crowds in Acts chapter 3, he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he explained to the crowds that Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet like Moses. He is the one whose word must not be ignored. We might expect the story to end at that point, but it didn't end there. Before the risen Jesus left his disciples, he told them this. I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. What is Jesus talking about there? He's promising his disciples that after he returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit will give these disciples clear and unambiguous words from God. And that promise came true. Those words made known to the disciples make up the New Testament. Again and again in the New Testament, the writers show an awareness that they are specially commissioned messengers passing on a message given to them by God. Jesus' promise in John 16 was not a general promise for all Christians. It was a specific promise for those apostolic messengers. And the context in John makes that very clear. And so if you and I want to hear the Word of God today, we seek it in the pages of Scripture. And there we find a word of refreshing clarity about forgiveness of sin and eternal life in Christ. We find instruction there about everyday obedience and everyday holiness. In Scripture, we find a coherent word, What we find in the New Testament is the outworking and fulfillment of all that God said in the Old Testament. So if you and I want to hear the word of God today, we do not go looking for a more immediate word than the word of Scripture. We certainly don't mess with clairvoyance or any of that stuff but neither do we fall into the trap of craving a more immediate word from God in the church. And I mention that because churches can fall into that trap. The clear word of Scripture can begin to seem less appealing than the search for an immediate word of guidance or prophecy. And when that craving begins to take over a church, Scripture ends up being sidelined. And preaching that seeks to explain and apply Scripture is replaced by the search for a new word. But craving those words of immediate guidance or prophecy makes us not very different from the Canaanites and their modern-day counterparts. Just like them, we're desperately trying to take a peek into what God has not chosen to reveal. Now, I do need to clarify carefully here what I'm saying. The New Testament does show that God may choose to provide insights and give promptings to his people about specific situations in their lives, about specific situations in the life of the church. He may do that. What I'm talking about here is chasing after those. When Christians swap their hunger for God's written word in favor of hunger for a more immediate word, the results are just as unreliable and often just as ambiguous as what you get from Mystic Meg or one of her pals. Some of you may have experience of that. And in those kind of situations, the worst part of it is the disregard of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. There, God warns in the strongest possible terms against presuming to speak in God's name something he has not commanded. And that tells us we should be very, very, very careful about saying, God told me such and such. Or, God is saying such and such. The only time we can safely say that is when we've just read Scripture. Sermons should never claim to be direct words from God. They are attempts to explain and apply the direct word from God given in Scripture. No preacher today is a prophet like Moses. He may have a gift for showing how Scripture applies to contemporary situations. God may use him to bring great insight through the application of Scripture to specific situations. But the preacher cannot claim to be receiving new revelation from God the way the writers of Scripture did. Today, it is the message of Scripture we cannot afford to ignore. God will call people to account for ignoring the message of Scripture. Not for ignoring the words of someone who claims to be a prophet. So as we close, let's give thanks for the refreshingly clear word God has given us in Scripture. And let's be satisfied with that word. Which is sufficient, as we heard earlier from the New Testament, to make us wise for salvation and to equip us for every good work. Let's not be enticed into craving new and immediate supernatural communication. That kind of craving is a step towards Canaanite religion. Our last song brings us back to the clear and simple truth of Scripture. Truth that we can take our stand on. Through our Savior Jesus Christ we are united forever to the uncreated one. Let's stand for King forevermore.
2: Words to hear.
0: peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.